In 2002, Hansi Crenier, the disgraced former South African cricket captain, tragically died in a plane crash aged only 32. I was on tour in early 2000 in India, where Crenier played his last two matches for South Africa, after which the match-fixing scandal emerged. This is the inside story of Hansi's fall from grace. Welcome to The Luke Alfred Show. I have 30 years of experience on the front lines of sports journalism, covering some of the biggest games in cricket, rugby, the FIFA World Cup, and even the Olympic Games. Come and join me as we learn about the greatest sports stories you've never heard. I'm Luke Alfred, and welcome to the show. Hansi Crenier was accused of accepting money from bookmakers in India to throw cricket matches. At first the allegations were denied by Crenier, but soon it became clear that there was more to this story than met the eye. Hansi was found guilty of match-fixing, which brought his professional playing career to an untimely end. In 2019 I met Hansi's sister, Hester, to learn the truth behind her brother Hansi, the former golden boy of South African cricket. The following is an extract I wrote from my book, Vuvuzela Dawn. This is the real story of Hansi Crenier. The days of 22nd and 23rd of January 1988 were not auspicious ones for the Crenier brothers, Hansi and France. Just out of Grey College in Bloemfontein, Hansi made his debut for Orange Free State in a Curry Cup fixture against Transvaal, with his brother playing only his fourth first-class game for the province. At the Wanderers, they faced a Transvaal attack led by the Barbadian Rod Estwick, with Clive Rice tucking into his slipstream. The match was over in two days. Both Transvaal pacemen had a touch of the thug about them, and they were none too sentimental about a group of upstart Afrikaners who had strayed onto the wrong side of the Bourivors curtain. France made one and four, while Hansi's first innings two was improved upon in his second dig, when he scraped 16 in two hours. Quote, The Croniers didn't do that badly, says Gordon Parsons, of a side who recently been promoted to A-section cricket. Free State managed 160-odd in the first innings and got bowled out for 51 in their second. Hansi topped scored in the second innings, if I remember correctly, and the next best score was that of Corey Van Sales. Parsons, an Englishman, wintered regularly in South Africa, and had met Hansi for the first time the previous season at the Ramblers' Nets in Bloemfontein. He was impressed by the youngster's willingness to learn, remembering that Hansi immediately asked him how he'd get him out. Parsons replied that because Hansi was a little rigid at the crease, he'd bowl on fourth stump, moving it away, and his guess was that the youngster would go at it with hard hands. It was the beginning of a long friendship, cemented over many a meal, at 246 Paul Kruger Avenue, the Croniers' home. Hansi's mom, son Marie, was famous for her cooking, and there was an extra attraction. Parsons rather fancied Hansi's sister, Hester. Cronier's disastrous first trip to the Wanderers was soon forgotten. Although he struggled, sometimes badly, in first-class cricket, he took to the limited overs game like a ball of pup to a fishing hook. Parsons remembers a one-day against Kepler Vessels' Eastern Province, in which he and the Cronier brothers played later that year. Vessels had said some mildly disparaging things about Orange Free State in the press, and it riled the visitors to St. George's, who were sensitive about being dismissed as a soft touch. There was more. 
Vessels was 12 years Crenier's senior at Gray College and had recently returned home after playing 24 tests for Australia. Vessels had beaten a path to the summit of the game and had done so on his own terms. Cronier idolised him. Taking honours against Kepler's EP would be just the thing. Quote, We were bowled out for 180-odd in our 45 overs, recalls Parsons with a chuckle. We then ran out Mark Rushmere and Philip Am went early. Kepler stuck around for 70 and moaned because we peppered him with bounces. Eventually we won that game by 13 runs. Orange Free State's newfound first-class status was in a sense a family affair. While the young Cronier brothers were struggling to tame Estwick on a spicy wanderer's deck, their dad, Irvi and others had campaigned tirelessly for Orange Free State to take what they believed was her rightful place amongst the traditional domestic powerhouses of the South African game. He also represented Orange Free State at board meetings and was close to the United Cricket Board's Ali Bacher. Through Irvi, the Croniers had a representative in the heart of South African cricket's decision-making process. Irvi grew up in the small town of Batuli, south of Bloemfontein, and had learned cricket from David Marks, the owner of the local Royal Hotel. For young middle-class Afrikaners, advantaged through the 1950s as apartheid began its comprehensive lockdown of South African life, cricket provided opportunities for self-improvement. All you had to do was wear white, rub your bat with linseed oil during the long winter nights on the Platteland, and remember to fold your wrists over the ball while cutting. Evi was the only Afrikaans-speaking member of the Orange Free State Nuffield side in 1957. Hansi, by contrast, was part of a dominant Afrikaans-speaking side in his final year at school 30 years later. After the 1987 Nuffield week, he went on to captain the SA Schools team with John T. Rhodes as a teammate, and, by the 1989-90 season, he was scoring his maiden first-class century for SA Universities against Mike Gatting's rebel English tourists. Parsons says that Cronier was not only conspicuously ambitious, he was also a good planner. Quote, his view was, if we do get back into international cricket, I'm going to be ready, says Parsons, a view encouraged when, shortly after Cronier had scored his maiden ton, Nelson Mandela was released from Paul's Victor Fester prison on the 11th of February 1990. It wasn't the first time that Cronier's path, fated early on as a possible South African captain, intersected with the crosswinds of politics. Some 18 months after Mandela's release, Cronier, along with Fayek Davids and Derek Crooks, was taken along to India as part of South Africa's hastily arranged first post-readmission tour. Pakistan had withdrawn from their trip to India at the last minute, and it was felt that the youngsters who supplemented the main side, would gain from the exposure. Yervi and San Marie were invited along as part of a slight and swollen official delegation. India had been a vocal critic of apartheid. Now, a hundred thousand people lined the streets from Kolkata airport to cheer the South African cavalcade as they all inched towards their hotel. At the beginning of the following year, Cronier's fine domestic form was rewarded with a place in South Africa's first World Cup squad. Weeks later, he found himself in Barbados as understudy to skipper Vessels, 
for three one-day internationals and a single test over Easter. South Africa was not yet democratic, but the world rushed to welcome her back into the fold. Both within and without, some thought it happened with unseemly haste. Quote, Nobody ever doubted for one second that Hansi was the right choice for captain, Cronier's former headmaster, Andre Folstiert, told a BBC Panorama documentary in 2008, and so it came to pass. With vessels suffering from a hand injury, Cronier took over the captaincy when the team was in Australia in 1993-94, with the South Africans memorably winning the Sydney Test. The full-time captaincy wasn't his, but it was only a matter of time. Vessels remained captain for the Tour of England in 1994, the first to England since readmission. Matters began on a high note of new flag-draping emotion, with a thumping win at Lords. Old soft hands, Peter Kirsten, scored a century in the drawn second test at Headingley, but Matters literally headed south at the Oval when Fanny de Villiers struck Devon Malcolm's flush on the helmet, an affront to which he didn't take kindly. Quote, don't ask me that. You guys are dead, was Malcolm's response to Alan Donald's question about whether Malcolm was all right, as he went on to fell the South African batsmen like skittles. Malcolm took nine for 57 in the South African second innings, England winning the test and so squaring that particular series. Cronier had a miserable time in England. His dismissal to Malcolm in the second innings at the Oval in the third test was a case in point. He was too late on the shot, bowled by a delivery that beat him for sheer breathtaking pace. The selectors were suddenly worried. Out of his comfort zone in England, Cronier looked troubled. Was he the right man to take over from Vessels? They dealt with their unease about Cronier and others, such as Andrew Hudson, both adroitly and with a touch of expedience, by sacking Mike Proctor, the coach. By the time the team toured again, Playing in the Wills Triangular in Pakistan with hosts in Australia, a new gaffer was driving the team bus. His name was Bob Wilmer, and he was a man for whom the word soap peel could have been invented. Having grown up in Kent, he had relocated to Cape Town in the 1980s after having played 19 tests for England. An assiduous thinker about the game, Wilmer interviewed better than his rivals and brought best practice and creativity to the job, qualities Proctor conspicuously lacked. Against Woolmer's better judgment, Vessels remained. He had turned 37 the month before the tour to Pakistan in October 1994, but such were the concerns about Cronier, the captain-elect, that Vessels soldiered on. Although the South Africans lost all six matches, Cronier was in sublime form, rounding off South Africa's second-last game with a not-out hundred against Australia. Despite South Africa failing to reach the final, he was the competition's leading scorer, making Vessels' retirement all the easier. And so Vessels the warrior walked into the sunset with a characteristically grim dignity that had made him such a reliable performer in the early readmission years. Cronier's first test in charge was against Ken Rutherford's New Zealanders at the Wanderers, which they lost in an atmosphere of finger-pointing and recrimination. A win at Kingsmead in Test 2 levelled the series, but such was the quality of Barry Lamson's umpiring in the third test at Newlands that Rutherford became apoplectic. He was incandescent that Lamson hadn't given Cronier out, 
when Cronier feathered an edge to the keeper on his way to a match and series winning 112. At the end of Cronier and Wilmer's first full season together, Cronier married his childhood sweetheart, Bertha Pretorius. Shortly afterwards, he started as Leicestershire's overseas professional, a position finessed by Parsons. During a busy county season, there were opportunities for fun. The young couple attended Wimbledon, where Hunsey was mistaken for Pete Sampras. There was a trip to Paris where, according to Hunsey's sister Hester, quote, they lived on bread and water. He was such a cheapskate. He was always giving away his freebies as Christmas and birthday presents. As the seasons rolled on, fun seemed in increasingly short supply. Towards the end of the team's first fully-fledged tour to India since readmission, Cronier entertained thoughts of throwing the third test in Kanpur. The team also considered a match-fixing proposition. After having had their arms twisted into playing in Mahinda Amanath's benefit match, which wasn't on the original itinerary. The following season, a young man from the Eastern Cape by the name of Makai Antini was forced on Cronier in a home series against Sri Lanka. As a farm boy, Antini had warmed his shoeless feet in cow pats as a child and so impressed cricket scouts that he was given a bursary to Dale College in King Williamstown, where he blossomed. He survived a rape trial to become the UCB's poster boy and Bacher thought it politically appropriate to shoehorn Antini into the national side. Cronier was having none of it. Antini hadn't served a domestic apprenticeship, Hansi argued, but his protestations were in vain. Antini made his debut against the Sri Lankans in the Newlands Test of March 1998, taking the first of what was to turn out to be 390 test wickets. The young skipper took on an increasingly beleaguered air. He turned out briefly alongside the abattoir workers and painters of Amateur Island as an overseas professional, a decision that unambiguously said to Bacher and his cohorts, be careful, you might lose me. The following season, during the West Indies' first visit to the country, South Africa fielded an all-white side against a visitor's all-black one in the first test. The controversy was immediate. Herschel Gibbs, a coloured, was drafted into the side in the place of Adam Bacher, Ali's white nephew, for the second test, but such tinkering did little to placate the politicians. A rancorous season, amped up by an insensitive speech at Newlands by the then UCB president Ray White, ended in Cronier resigning, a decision he later rescinded. The problem was by now clear. Cronier was never quite as liberal as the times demanded. He, whose political attitudes had been formed in the old South Africa, was expected to usher in the new with a blithe sweep of the politician's practised hand. He couldn't always do it. As the decade funneled to an end, Cronier and the politicians such as Bacher circled each other increasingly warily. What had started so warmly with Wilma also began to sour. Consecutive World Cup eliminations in 1996 and 1999 didn't help. The second in excruciating circumstances in the tie against Australia at Edgbaston, a muddle memorably captured by the Daily Telegraph's Shield Berry, quote, As the day when time and Alan Donald stood still and Lance Klusner simply kept on running. Having toured India in 1991 as the happening youngster, 
Cronier was in the public eye throughout the decade, South African sports' first celebrity skipper. Lucas Gadebe graced the throne all too briefly, hobbled by injuries. Francois Pinar might have occupied the position too, but his reign as Springbok player and captain was dazzlingly brief, over in 29 tests in three years, 1993 to 1996. Cronier was in the public gaze for triple that time, 1991 to 2000, longer if one takes his post-cricketing life into account. It was a time during which Afrikaner politicians retired almost completely from the public realm. Into the vacuum flowed Afrikaans-speaking sportsmen and public intellectuals, such as Max Dupree and Anki Kroch. Cronier became the go-to man for young and old Afrikaners alike. He also became a notional figurehead for all that was perceived as good in the fragile post-apartheid consensus, a new man for a new age. Here was uncharted territory, conducted almost exclusively in the glare of public opinion. It was a difficult burden to bear. Cronier's dislike of political compromise was one thing, the tragic flaw in his personality quite another. He loved money so much that he was motivated to do wrong for it, a fact known by White and one therefore almost inevitably known by Bacher. Not enough was made of the flirtation with easy money during the Can-Per test in 1996 ahead of the Armanath benefit match, not initially scheduled, and hastily tacked on to the end of the punishing tour without the player's consent. Wilmer didn't see fit to include anything in his post-tour report, and by the time a new coach, Graham Ford, took South Africa to India next, institutional memory had been lost. Cronier accepted the gift of a cell phone while on tour there in 2000 and, unbeknownst to him, his conversations to illegal Indian bookies were taped. Cronier's initial denials that he'd been involved in match-fixing were met by chest-thumping agreement by the Vox Populi. Then, a handwritten confession and a teary press conference in Durban in April 2000 ahead of an ODI series against Australia. The bookie, Marlon Ehrenstam, who had waltzed into Cronier's hotel room during the last test of the home summer against England before the Indian tour, thought Cronier had been pressured into blinking first. The Indian police had no transcript. Quote, it was his word against theirs. He needed to ride it out, said Aaron Stam. Instead, Cronier unraveled. It became apparent that the idea for each side to forfeit an innings at Centurion against England was not his, but was Ehrenstam's, an act of audacity for which Cronier received 50,000 rand and a leather jacket for Berta. While in India weeks later, he was receiving upwards of 50 to 60 cell phone calls and text messages a day, as he jokingly floated the idea of underperforming in a test with Lance Klusner, Mark Boucher and Jacques Cullis. Later in India, with a five-match ODI series already lost, he conspired to involve Gibbs and Henry Williams in underperforming in the fifth ODI in Nagpur. Ever the charming Loskop, Gibbs forgot the instructions. Williams injured himself and couldn't complete the second of his ten overs. Ironically, South Africa actually won the match, but lost the ODI series 3-2. Cronier's confession prompted the King Commission, a soap opera replete with pantomime villains, Aaron Stam, feisty public prosecutors, 
Shamila Batoy, and comically unreliable witnesses, Pat Simcox and Daryl Cullinan. Judge Edwin King had begun proceedings by striking the appropriate high note, telling Cronier that, quote, the truth shall set you free, close quote. But with hindsight, we see that the commission's intention was palliative. Woolmer wasn't called as a witness. Neither was Vessels. White, who had a sometimes tetchy relationship with Bacher and was therefore less likely to coat his answers, would have proven invaluable in answering questions. It would have been illuminating, for instance, to hear his answers about the lost 1996 tour report to India. All this was conducted in the deforming glare of the television cameras, a place Cronier had occupied, on and off, since his first tour to India in 1991. Essentially an outlier, apartheid-educated, Afrikaans-speaking, from South Africa's most maligned province, Cronier was not only ill-equipped for the diplomacy demanded by the Times, he was also the country's most scrutinized celebrity sportsman. The pressures he faced were unique, the erosion slow and cumulative. By the end, he was lost in a moral wilderness, having breakfast with Aaron Stam, the bookie, and his son on the morning of a test, entertaining thoughts of corrupting the match. Cricket, a sport of boundaries both actual and moral, had, under Cronier's perverting touch, revealed itself to be effectively boundaryless, a moral degree zero. Quote, when I told my friends about having breakfast with Hansi, they couldn't believe it, said Aaron Stam, and neither could we.